Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. For this final episode of this current season, I spoke with Dr. Libby Nugent, who is a clinical psychologist who works psychoanalytically with both individuals and groups. She's done a lot of work with NHS staff and in thinking about the conscious and unconscious dynamics of working within healthcare. I began by asking her what a psychoanalyst is. Good question to start on. Um, I think partly I think it's a good question to start on because I think it's quite confusing, you know, that there's so many different terms on the psychologist, psychotherapist, psychoanalyst, and, and it can feel just a bit disorientating. I suppose for me, what psychoanalyst means is someone who is interested in patterns in relationships, um, patterns in relationships that normally start when you're quite young. So the first relationships that we have are with our parents or caregivers and our family members. And um, we only know what we know. We, on- we only know those patterns. Um, and as we get older, we, we kind of go to new environments, meet new people, and we often find ourselves um, repeating those patterns. Um, A really important part of, um, I guess, psychoanalysis and what makes it a little bit different from um, other types of um, talking therapies is that we're really interested in something called the unconscious. And all that means is the bits of the patterns that we do that we're not aware that we do. Or I guess a different way of thinking about it might be... um, I might know what I need to do to lose weight. I might know that I just need to exercise and eat less and it's really straightforward. And yes, it, and yet I can't quite do it. <laughs> and, and there's a bit in me that I suppose psychoanalysts would say that's just not conscious. It doesn't know why it does what it does. And I might think, oh, I just need to write a better list or I might need to get a better motivation and yet I still can't quite do it. Um, so that's really what psychoanalysis is about, is about looking at patterns and also at looking at um, why we keep doing the things that we're doing, even though sometimes we don't want to. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was what I noticed in my work and in myself is that as a health professional, our relationship with our work um, can be quite complicated and problematic. And just when you were talking there, I was thinking, you know, we can find ourselves doing things, being stuck in patterns, keeping going, even when it we don't want to, and even when we know it hurts us. So I'd be really curious to kind of hear your thoughts about what, what's going on there. Well, oh gosh, I mean, probably all sorts of things, depending on the person. Um, I, think, I think work's a really good place for us to go to, to look at, you know, why we keep doing certain things, even though 
you know, 10 minutes earlier you were saying we were never going to do it again. <laughs> so I'm, I'm never going to take another patient on or I'm, I'm going to make sure I take that lunch break or I'm absolutely going to leave work on time. You know, I'm going to I'm going to talk to that person and tell them exactly what I feel. And 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 yet 10 minutes later, it's, you know, we're back in the puddle on the floor thinking, gosh, what just happened there? Or or maybe telling ourselves, oh, it'll be better this time. It, you know, it will be okay, you know, just this once. And and I think, you know, a lot of my work is really working with healthcare professionals, either through kind of reflective spaces or sometimes I, I do some work with the um, practitioner health service. And these situations come up a lot for people. They just do. Where there's a sort of rational bit or a, a conscious bit that knows work isn't working <laughs> and yet it's really really difficult to do it differently and and it can activate some really strong emotions in people actually you know I, I think working in healthcare professions and, and I'm sure this will apply to kind of other occupations as well but but I think there's something particular about healthcare professions and there's something particular about the NHS within that you know many of us just are there for restorative reasons we want we want to help we want to make a difference we care and and then we find ourselves in this place where we're not quite caring and helping the way we know how to and yet we can't do it differently and the bind is to walk away from that is it's not just walking away from a job it's not just walking away from um yeah something that pays the bills it's trying to walk away from a part of yourself from a part of your identity um maybe a part of your childhood if you're in a profession where you kind of grew up you know in it like medicine or nursing or psychology and it's really really painful actually it's really painful and can leave people in a lot of internal conflict where they kind of might know what they need to do but they just can't they can't quite do it and yet staying is 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 unbearable and I suppose I'm wondering as you were talking about you know what the unconscious reasons are that we might go into this job that that might be um part of that conflict well i i think i mean and again this i don't know if this would apply to to everybody i i think that would be quite a lot of hubris but i certainly i certainly think for lot for lots of people there's a, this idea of restoration and i think a lot a lot of people who want to help have grown up needing to help in some way needing to be helpful and that being helpful wasn't was something that wasn't really necessary for for the person caring for them so if i just kind of keep it in a very simple story and say maybe it's about mum mum's not been very supported maybe she's not been appreciated or valued enough and and the child learns i i can i can help i can be helpful to mum and if one of the ways that we learn to be helpful is to be quiet maybe or we learn to sit in the corner while she's busy and not play or we learn to to 
be polite and play nicely. Or we learn to, you know, if, if she's working long shifts and, you know, we learn that we don't need as much company, that we're okay by ourselves, or that we don't need to eat when we're hungry. We can just wait a little, little bit longer or wait till there's more food in the cupboards when there's a bit more money. You know, you, you, learn, you learn to put things on pause and to prioritize something more important, which is maybe the whole family, the family as a group, or, or mum in particular. And, and you learn, learn that, you know, if mum's just supported properly, everything would be okay, because mum's great. And that's, that's the story you keep being given. And, and so not necessarily consciously, but unconsciously, you have this pattern of, in order to receive love, something has to be kind of removed or, or killed off or delayed or denied in some way. Now, we have a culture that um, I think, again, I, I should say I'm, um, I'm interested in uh, two different types of, of psychology. One is it's something called Jungian psychology, which is very interested in aspects of creativity and in storytelling and, and how stories exist in, in big groups and collectives in society. And the other psychology I'm interested in, which I'm training in, is group analysis. And that's very much this idea that everybody is, in, is naturally social. And, and both of those psychologies are interested in language and in, in talking. And and they're in, both interested in stories. And the reason why I've kind of taken that detour a little bit is to kind of explain a little bit about how our society has stories about mothers. And, and it used to be a long time ago that, that mothers were quite sort of ambivalent characters in stories. So you might have a story like Hansel and Gretel, which lots of people are familiar with. And the, the original kind of versions of that story, because it's really old, it was just a mother. It was a mother, it was time of famine. And the mother said, the children have to go out into the woods, we can't feed them anymore. Which would have been a very real situation. And that would be a, a dilemma that mothers have, is, is how do you feed your children when you've got no food? And actually, if you die, then everybody dies. Um, and really difficult choices. And the mother in that story grieves, and actually she, she dies at the end of it. You know, it's kind of a sad... Hansel and Gretel eventually get back home, but the mother's, mother's dead. The Grimm's brothers kind of took that story and they edited it a bit and changed it and as a culture we changed the story so it stopped being a natural mother as in a birth mother and it became a kind of wicked stepmother a natural birth mother it's sort of tricky language isn't it but a birth mother somehow wouldn't wouldn't do that to her child but a wicked stepmother would something kind of unnatural unfeeling uncaring and, and it's the wicked stepmother that sends them out into the woods. And when she dies, it's a punishment at the end because she's terrible. And we kind of have kept bits of that story in our culture alive now. So, you know, we think that mothers are only good. And we talk about love, love changes everything. If you look at all our songs and our music, we've got so much is about how love saves the world from everything. And that... We don't really talk about the need for grief, 
the need for loss, the despair a mother might feel when she can't feed her children. We sort of imagine, it doesn't matter how many much the government cuts funding or however much you know, that, that somehow we'll keep surviving, we'll just keep going. Endurance and willpower are gonna save the day. And collectively we've kind of um, made unconscious the part of the mother that has to deny a child. The part of the mother that is should rightfully be hated by the child. I mean, there's nothing likable for that. And, and what we have now is our mothers that are supposed to endlessly provide with nothing in the cupboard and children that should only be grateful and shouldn't rage or protest. And, and, and you see that hopefully this isn't too much of a detour but kind of you really see that in people's work culture their attitude you know the nhs is a kind of mother and and in the and and it's a sort of part of the the a sort of british family structure you know you've hard pushed to escape the nhs in this country it's just it she's everywhere even if you don't use it directly and most people do uh, friends, family, colleagues use it and we are very dependent on it and, and lots of ways that's a really great thing but she's also chronically underfunded and unsupported and politicised and, and we all have an idea if the NHS could just be supported properly <laughs> then everything would be okay you know that's also a story we have and to be the kind of children of the NHS, as in the staff that work there, when she's unsupported, but not allowed to fail, because she has to just be good. Um, people end up in really tricky, tricky situations where they're left sort of hungry or, or sort of symbolically hungry, some symbolically underfed, and they're not, they've got no place to take that. And sometimes literally, hungry and literally underfed people not being able to meet their basic needs when they're at work not being able to take time or having access to food toilet breaks water yeah all but it's true and 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 it's and you could kind of see it in the pandemic in a really literal way as well you know that it's certainly at the beginning where was you know NHS staff will be sent in and people were you know banging pots and saying thank you and then they couldn't get into the supermarket to fill their, their cupboards um you know we have a wish for for caregivers to do without and to just endurance and willpower that we call love which is a sort of slightly perverse thing but we call it love and care that somehow that's going to save us all. Um, but then the dilemma though, which is very real, you know, if you again look at the Hansel and Gretel story, there was a famine. And actually the, the grief that a mother would have to go through to send her children away, I mean, it, it's sort of unthinkable. And actually that that's the dilemma I think a lot of staff have, you know, they're literally you know, I've heard stories of people just being left with no, you know, no one to call for support with, with, a, with a ward full of patients. And if you go home, there's no one to take over. You know, if, you, if you're going home just to get some sleep, just to get some rest, who's, who's going to take over? 
and and it it's it's impossible it's such an impossible choice people are put into there isn't an easy answer you know making things conscious actually is 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 a task of being able to um make pain conscious and and that's hard and Libby I know that you've written about um the NHS as death mother can you expand on that particular term so that's a um the death mother archetype i mean it's a really bold name isn't it it's quite a frightening one though actually with the story i've told it just then it, it, it it's an apt one there's a few different Jungian analysts that have talked about this archetype um marion woodman was the first one and i think she did some joint work with daniela sifa and Danielle Seif is still very much kind of talking about this archetype and there's someone called Violet Sherwood as well who I think it's in New Zealand talks about it. And what it is, is a really, it, it's a way of trying to describe this idea of what happens when we, we um, split mothering up. And so it's kind of what I just described really about, about the kind of the, the state of mothering or sometimes we call it the kind of the feminine, the feminine being anything to do with nature or the body. We, we currently live in a period of time where we really don't value very much bodies or mother nature. Um, we, we really prize kind of mind over matter attitudes. And, you know, matter is another word of saying martyr, mother. And we, we really try and encourage kind of more and more science. I'm very pro-science, so this might sound like an odd thing to say, but the more and more technology, more and more solutions to things. And the more we do that, the more we can kind of disconnect from how things actually work, where waste goes. We can create fantasies of living in pain-free societies, of there not being death which are kind of the, the sort of necessary but can create a disconnect. It's an odd sort of tension. And the, the death mother archetype is, is really, it's like um, what happens when we deny grief and pain and suffering and that, that part of life. And, and it's the bit that's just about endurance and willpower. And so I guess the phrase is, it's the shadow of nature. That's what always sticks in my head. It's, it's the bit that, um, yeah, that we don't see very clearly that if we ignore what's real, what things actually cost. So an example of that might be, you know, flying somewhere abroad and the holiday. And we can think about how relaxing that is and not really think about how it, it kind of hurts the environment. And I don't mean that in any kind of judgment way. I, it's just sort of speaking to something real or... You know, we can talk about avocados being super healthy and and I, you know, I live in kind of Shropshire, North Wales and, um, you know, we don't grow avocados around here. <laughs> so whilst it might be like really healthy for my body, I'm denying a big part of the story, which I can do because I don't know how it works. And the death mother is, is this archetype that's really kind of, so you don't need to know how things work. <laughs> It's not important. 
you just you don't need to have a connection with the body or with nature or what's natural we, we don't we just we just need to do what we do and pretend it's all nice that that's the kind of the, and and there's probably um it's probably more psychoanalytic kind of explanations than the one I've given but that's kind of my working idea in my head that I go with it makes me think about what it's like to work in the NHS and it's a lot like that that kind of opaqueness of of systems and the, and the power structures you're not really allowed to know what happens and where it goes an NHS example of that might be you know we we just we have waiting lists for services and people don't really sit and think what does it feel like to be on a waiting list a two three year waiting list we just think oh well it happens <laughs> For them, you have to wait, a bit uncomfortable, but we don't really think about the psychology of waiting and what that means to a person rev- arriving. And the longer you have to wait, and I'm not saying no waiting either, because sometimes you have to wait. It's not about um, removing waiting lists. It's about understanding what's real in them. But the longer you wait, the more you're making it very clear that as a caregiver, you are under-resourced. The more you are activating in a patient the idea that they probably need to behave they probably need to be doing something to support their unsupported caregiver it makes complaint quite difficult then it makes makes it difficult to say when you finally get to the end of the queue if you've got anything else is there is there another person i can speak to or maybe a better fit are you sure are you sure or if someone says, well, you can have this treatment, but it's going to take 12 months or you have this treatment and it will be three weeks and you can get it from the pharmacy. All of us, you know, people want to be useful and, and not cause a bother to, to their kind of patient siblings. And that that's, a, that's an ethical problem. And it's a real ethical problem, you know, for, for mental health services particularly. But there's, you know, there's other services that we have that have these very, very long waiting lists. And, and people kind of being, um, I want to use the word declawed before they arrive. It also creates the sense that, well, you're lucky to be yeah. here because there's so many other people who want and need this and... But it's the whole system because this also hurts the clinicians. You know, the clinicians are making people wait. And and one of the real, really kind of difficult things, because the NHS is a whole family, it really is. It's, you know, clinicians are both patients and caregivers. it's, It's much more about a sibling dynamic than it is actually about, you know, that, that your caregiver is actually your sibling. And so they are also wrestling with the feeling dependent, not being able to say no, where do you protest, kind of wanting to champion the more unwell sibling in that dynamic, but at the same time knowing that everybody needs care and nobody's quite getting enough. And it's really, it's, it's, it's really complicated or it's a complex, it's a real, there's a real kind of social complex going on for us around this and I can think of times when you know being aware of waiting lists and how terrible that feels to know that you're asking people to wait for so long and knowing that people are suffering while they wait 
but it can it's just overwhelming and paralyzing to go there and um I guess you're making me think of another story actually so one one of the the stories that I sometimes think about when I think about the death mother archetype is I think about the story of Medusa and I don't know if you know she's a she's Greek gods goddess story and she worked in a temple of Athena who's the goddess of wisdom and um she's I don't know depending on which version you read she's kind of either sexually assaulted or she's kind of overcome by this god either way she's violated and she's not very happy about it in protest and she's punished and she she gets turned into a monster where her head is full of snakes and whoever she looks at gets turned to stone and in in lots of ways we could say Medusa's kind of the embodiment of trauma she's kind of you know your head full of snakes it's kind of squirrely you don't know what's going around I sometimes I, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast but it's kind of um you know snakes are a bit phallic so you're a bit of a dickhead you know you can kind of it can be quite difficult to get close to they bite but hugely creative potential you know all of that life and but when you get close to someone who's in a lot of suffering as we're all inherently social it's terrifying it's petrifying we turn to stone and so or and so it becomes very very difficult you know you've got trauma everywhere and everyone keeps being turned to stone and that's the paralyzing feeling that we often have where we want to move towards something but we don't know how and and then there's all this anger and rage that you might get located in certain clinicians or in certain patients and you're just like oh god like do they have to? <laughs> it's often the feeling. It's a really um, emotionally numb feeling. It lacks such empathy, but that, that's the turning to stone bit. That really resonates. Um, and I guess that becomes, we could kind of operate in that mode for a bit. You know, I can totally remember times and, and when I've you know been managing people and said the same thing of, you know, we can just, all we can do is what we can do and that's kind of okay for a bit but I guess then the discomfort sets in where you're not then able to be the good child because you're you're stuck I'm reading with my son and that we're reading the Percy Jackson book so yeah it's, uh, <laughs> amazing <laughs> and you know that the statues get um uh, like turned to sand uh you know like a, an annihilation is, is what it can feel like. And and I think annihilation is the right word. I, I think for, for some people, and particularly for staff, you know, that um, have to leave, say, and I don't know if people always have to leave, but for people that have to leave, it can feel like an annihilation. It can feel like, um, you know, it's not just work, it's your community, it's your friendship group, it's people that you grew up with. There's something very um, difficult about telling people you left the NHS. Like it's not it's not a story that, you know, you can say with a lot of pride. I mean, it, it, it's it's really difficult. It can feel very shaming and, and, and that somehow you were supposed to survive it. You were supposed to, it's supposed to be survivable. And, and again, I, I don't, um, I think the NHS is very important and I kind of signed up to protect the NHS, but I'm also signed up to reality about what it is that we're protecting and what people 
really do need to be sustained in in environments that there is just not enough where you will be you will be letting people down you you will probably be being hated certainly breaking people's hearts in terms of not giving them what you want to and and maybe what they deserve in adverted commas you know um it, it's it's really difficult and what about the the aspect of um we've talked i suppose about you know the, the patient care side but when work is you know really actively hurting us in terms of um you know brutal rotors you know no breaks a kind of exposure lack of support and it's also paralyzing i think i'd probably turn to the medusa story again for this um i i very much in the medusa story here i was chosen to stop her but he has to approach her in a particular way he has to you can't look at her directly so he has this kind of shield that's um so shiny you reflect in it and so he he kind of approaches just looking at the reflection walking backwards and um and eventually he gets there and he's got very fast shoes i think they're winged he gets there and he he removes her head from her body which is interesting thing and and her body becomes transformed her body becomes transformed into this huge golden giant with a sword which is kind of fight I guess and this winged horse Pegasus and Pegasus we associate I guess with fight you've got fight and flight that have come out so that's the kind of the movement of trauma into something a bit more functional and Pegasus you also associate with poetry kind of with creativity and I think for me that that's kind of yeah that's kind of you have to learn how to pick your battles you have to learn how to be in part, a connect a more a body part of the self, something more instinctual, which might be Pegasus, that kind of horse bit. Um, that also that you have to, it can be incredibly important to kind of connect to creativity. And just something that that's nourishing. I I, I heard and it's it's kind of cheesy, but I I heard um something recently, where that um somebody was talking they said we're not we're not human doings we're human beings and learning how to just be learning your value beyond usefulness is really vital connecting to the kind of animal part of ourselves that's a little bit less socialized I don't know what the word would be yeah so for me it's creativity community care choice they're the kind of the principles of it so i guess that that kind of answers the question i wanted to ask you about how we respond to this stuff in terms of everyday stuff i I think the more we learn to speak honestly and not gaslight each other into pretending um awful things are survivable or nice is probably the first step it's remarkably difficult just to speak honestly about things to say I can't and that's terrible or or something even worse I don't want to I don't want to stay in work any longer I want to go home and watch Netflix or I want to go home I mean there's something so almost blasphemous about that you know people people have to come up with something worthy 
as if as if just having any kind of life outside of work is is not worthy and and you know people have to you know throw their kids high in the air or throw their pets high in the air and say look I've got to take care of these other people I'm useful away from here you can't just say actually I just want to I don't know eat some cake and and watch I don't know I'm trying to think what I've been watching recently the witcher bit of Henry Carvel like I can't like 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 what what's wrong with that but but it, it it's it's it is a terrible, I guess I'm saying it flippantly, but actually I suppose the reality is that it's a, it's wrong, someone would say, because somebody might die if you, do, if you don't. And then why should I be watching Netflix and drinking coffee and eating cake when somebody's dying? And then you get in this very difficult sibling dilemma of whose life is worth more. And it, they are, they're terrible, terrible choices. But the reality is, if we don't self-care at all, eventually there will be no caregivers left and it will all be gone. And that's dramatic, but actually people are leaving the NHS in, in big numbers now. It, it's really difficult. Or, they, or if people go back in, they're going in on contracts you know, and then they get sort of scapegoated a bit because they're so expensive or, you know, like all this kind of stuff that happens. And and it, it it's, it's just so difficult. So something about being able to voice that. Yeah. Um, and maybe I can ask you about these other things that you mentioned. So you talked about creativity. That really resonates with me. That's one of my kind of strands of my of my work. I really feel that, um, you know, there's so many benefits. But I'm wondering if, if, if you could say more about that and, and what Jung might say about why it is so essential, why it's so important for us. Beyond the kind of, I don't know, it feels good and it's nice to do something pretty with stuff. Well, I guess it's, it's about eros. It's about life force. It and it's about you know psychology is is the study I guess of soul or of breath depending which translation you go so psyche meaning um, I think it means butterfly or breath or soul and so it's the study of that and the story of psyche is that she falls in love with Eros who's the son of Aphrodite and and then has to go on quite a battle to kind of because she, she betrays him and he runs away and she goes has to go in quite a battle to kind of claim him back. And and I think often work becomes soulless. I think work can become people are drawn to it for love. They've I mean that's a really again quite a simple way of thinking about it, but people want to give love. They want to care. And so this idea of soul and love coming together is, is important, you know, because people go there to give love and to make a meaningful life, to have some soul in their life. And then, and then that's not what happens because work becomes soulless. So how do we, how do we create more soul in our lives? And, and I know this all sounds very flowery. I mean, I, I really appreciate that it can sound a bit sort of hug a tree or something, but I actually take it really seriously. Um, I, I think 
there's something very necessary about being more than useful. You know, that the, there's something very dark that happens when we just see people as expendable. You know, you're just only as important as, as the job you can do. And so creativity and doing things, not because you're good at them, not because you're going to, I mean, it's irrelevant. I mean, it's nice to be good at the stuff we want to create, but it's not really the point. You know, and, and finding ways to allow yourself to just be is, is really vital. And so I, I think Jung I think Jung would talk about Eros and Libido. I've no idea. I don't I I'm I'm more of a group analyst than a Jungian in terms of training, but that's what I think. No, that's great. And then the other thing you mentioned was community. Yeah. I guess this is the kind of um group analytic bit of me, really, that I think people are inherently social. And one of the really striking aspects of my my work whether again whether it's in um, any of the bits of clinical work I, I do or the reflective spaces that I run is that that people are are really lonely often and feel very alone with their their struggles with work there's something it is there's a lot of shame in it or there's a kind of, sometimes you get a bit of bravado kind of eye roll, like, oh, you know, typical NHS, blah, blah, blah. Well, that's kind of hiding in plain sight. Underneath that, that there's something really despairing going on. You know, if people really saw the, the loss and the sadness that, that healthcare professionals are carrying, that um, I think they might be quite shocked, actually, if people really saw it. Um, I say people, I mean the kind of society at large. And I think that I think we can't deny reality that that painful things are dif- painful and difficult things are difficult. But we can bear witness to it. And I think the more people bear witness, the, the easier something is to not feel mad with it, to not feel alone with it. And it becomes survivable. You know, I, I think I think community and groups, um, they can shame, but they can also take shame away. And and shame really is about just being isolated with something, just thinking part of you is unacceptable, it shouldn't be there, it it, it shouldn't exist. Again, it's very death mothery. It's it's somehow we're not we're not supposed to um, that bit's not human. Um, so I, I think community is really vital as well. And, and for lots of healthcare professionals, their work is their community. And this is when it gets really, really complicated, you know, that the, the banter that you get with your team, with the ward, you know, the often very dark humour, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so if you've got this dilemma of should I stay or should I go, that's, that's the, the main thing that people talk about that leave, actually, is, is, is the loss of, loss of that type of community. So how do we support the communities within the NHS better, but also how do we support people that leave through community as well? And care was your third point. I think 
there's something then again this kind of links to I mean it all links together it's quite hard to separate them out really but that there's something about really understanding that if we feel something then it's human and it that's okay to talk about it it's a sort of basic thing and and it's really important that we we talk and that when we talk we experience someone on the other side that cares they don't have to agree they don't even have to understand and again community helps with this because the more people you have in the room more likely is you'll get at least one person <laughs> that, <laughs> that knows what you're saying um but but we need we need to learn to care and expect care and for that care to not be conditional on on being tidied up you have to present it in a particular way you know it has to come pre-packaged or with the right sort of joke like you can just you can just arrive and it will it will be there but the only way this is all sort of cycles back really but the only way we can be authentic with offering care is also being authentic with offering limits mm-hmm. you know it might not be that everybody gets enough care in any given experience it might not you know that you have to kind of um you have to try and give care consciously and livy the last point was choice i think we're in a world that very necessarily and very importantly is grappling with ideas of power at the moment and who has choice and who doesn't have choice um i guess there's something in me that that likes to kind of qualify that a bit in that it actually most of us have we may not have great choices but we probably always do have a choice (laughs) Um, and some people have a lot more choices than others Um, and it can be really when we have less power in a situation and we're shrouded in shame it can feel very very difficult to know what choices we have and they can become quite black or white stay or go Um, or you know if or I have or I have to stay I mean you often hear that like I can't I can't I can't leave on time I have to go I can't do this I have to I have to I have to and I, I don't really have a straightforward answer than answer to kind of um, what people should do with their choices but just it it's it's really vital that that gets part of this conversation where is the choice what's our relationship with choice how much choice do we have and 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 you know what what's real what is actually real i'm just i suppose just thinking about some of the the stuff going on in the world around you know abortion and and choices around you know what happens to your bodies and um and i guess you know thinking about people's experiences through the pandemic and again choices around risks that people are exposed to um yeah, so I suppose my mind has gone to 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 times when um, choice feels like it's taken away from people in relation to the power that is operating, um, and how traumatic that is. Not only in terms of 
the internal conflict of that, but the real world consequences yeah. of that. Yeah. And this, the, the death mother archetype, um, you know, in her more kind of sort of more shocking story incarnations, you've got stories like Medea, who is a, is a woman in a story who chooses to kill her children. And a more recent version would be Toni Morrison's Beloved, which is an extraordinary story that is really, um, it's got elements of Medea in it, but also a woman who's been enslaved and abused. It's just horrific. And, and again, she chooses to kill her children rather than have them be put, put into that system of abuse. Um, these are terrible choices. They're terrible choices. And I, I suppose from a psychoanalytic perspective, it's about, it's, it's about the importance of, of, of making them consciously rather than rather than trying to pretend anything is nice anything is uncomplicated um trying to reserve judgment on ourselves and other people which again is the care and the community like like that that people are faced with terrible terrible choices and if and if we don't hold them consciously and really understand that part of mothering actually is death and that we might not like that as an idea it might feel disgusting, it might feel like we just really repulsed, we want to keep away from it. But unless we understand that that is really a, a part of mothering, the things that we do to each other and our communities and our societies and our countries um, is, is so much worse, you know. So we either have death in mothering or we live a death mother archetype, which is, is horrifying. And, and the most horrifying aspect of it to me is that we say it's nice, we say it's love, we say it's care. That that makes me think of, of the the trickiness around the kind of clap for carers um, and just, you know, this kind of real range of, of emotions people I've experienced in that and I, I think that's a that's a perfect embodiment actually. And and it and it also like um Community is so important because, you know, part part of the thing that I love about story and reflective practice is not about holding one interpretation and saying that's the truth. We, we need to understand there's lots of choices in our stories. There's lots of interpretations. So clap for carers. For some parts of community, it would have been a way of saying thank you. It would have been a way of saying pride, of trying to show support. It would have been profoundly important to do that and maybe profoundly important to receive it. You know, as a healthcare professional, like, it, like the, you need some kind of exchange to go on. But it can very quickly also be experienced as a, as a silencing as a you can't complain you have to you're not you're supposed to be okay it's supposed to be nice going in to a place where you could die and, and the stories at the beginning you know where like I mean we still don't really know what was going on but the beginning like really you people it could have been walking to death and for some people that was true that was realized as well and and being clapped on your way is just like my god and to be the person who clapped is also, oh my God, what did I just clap? And, and then of course there's the people that didn't clap that stood in silence or protested in different ways. And, and we, need, 
we need lots of different voices to be heard so that we can have our experiences validated so we can see that we have choice that we're not alone with something that that chances are someone will understand <laughs> the shame will be dispersed either of wanting the clapping like you might be in a certain group like everyone's saying clapping's awful and you're like oh my god I liked it and then there's another group that might be saying you know clapping's you know amazing and you're like I didn't I didn't want to be clapped to my death like no and I guess for some people that will be feeling both of those at the same time loving it and hating it yeah which I think is probably most actually and which makes this stuff so complicated there's a phrase that I really like that says um what's out there is in here as in inside myself is back then as in in the past so whatever I'm drawing my attention to in the outside world is something that resonates with me in my internal world, which is going to be linked to something in my experience, either directly in my family experience or in my, my um, the socialising processes that I experienced growing up. So Libby, if, um, if people want to find out more about your groups and, and about the work that you do. Um... Yeah, so, um, um, so I have a website. Uh, www.libbynugent.co.uk and I have a blog on there as well where I kind of jot down thoughts and sometimes I, I'm, I like to talk and I like to write and so they're quite long but um, yeah I put, put ideas down so and there's an events page and people can just come along actually they're really everybody's welcome um, the groups are normally they're not massive they're kind of between kind of five and 12 people normally that kind of space so it's try to create um not too big so there's space for people to talk thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast please do share it with others post about it on social media or leave a rating and review i'd love to connect with you so do come and find me on linkedin or twitter You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again and until next time, take good care.